So in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are joining the, I'm Emily, by the way, I'm on the teaching team. Um, in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are joining the Advent Conspiracy Movement, which is an effort by churches all over our country to reclaim Christmas from where we've taken it in our culture and make it meaningful, again, by focusing it back on Jesus. And perhaps nothing has stolen our focus from Jesus as strongly as consumerism have, has. So that's why this week, uh, the first week was Worship Fully, which TC did, and this week is called Spend Less. As an advanced warning, this message is going to be very heavy on the practical side of things, but this ties into what TC said last week. I, I really like this. He was quoting a mentor of his. People don't think their way into a new way of acting. They act their way into a new way of thinking. We are moved by our deepest loves, and our deepest loves are formed by our habits, our rhythms, and the practices in which we participate. So if we want to change our interactions with consumerism, we need to change our habits, our rhythms, and our practices. And this will help form our deepest love. As Jesus said when he was talking about money in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Consumerism steals away from us our deepest love. It puts our hearts in the wrong places. If you go to a chiropractor, they'll tell you that if one part of your back is out of alignment, it's gonna throw everything out of alignment. And in the same way, if our hearts are out of alignment, everything else goes out of alignment too. So Jesus wants to set our hearts right. All of us have malfunctionings in our dealing with money, but they're not the same malfunctions. So even though today I'm gonna to be focusing on the downfall of consumerism, I also wanna to touch on some of the other things we might struggle with with money, because even if it's not our thing, we all have something we struggle with and our hearts need reshaping. So here's a couple of things, uh, sinful ways that we interact with our money and possessions. Top of the list, and we usually think of this, is greed. Greed is wanting to own and possess to accumulate, acquire, stockpile, hoard onto our things. It's like the seagulls and finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. When we don't have all the things we want, that's when we fall into envy. We are jealous and coveting. We're never satisfied with what we have because there's always someone who has something more than us, something newer than us, something shinier than us. We are constantly comparing and we're never content. But when we do get the things we want, sometimes we fall into the worry camp. Now that I have my nice car, I don't want anything to happen to it. I have these new toys and these new things, so my mind starts devoting considerable energy to how I'm going to protect them and maintain them and hold on to them. I start to worry about dings and dents and spills and stains. And besides what the Bible says about thieves and moths and vermin, there's also rust and flood and fire and computer hackers. Nothing is safe anymore. A companion to worrying about our things might be fear. Do I have enough? What if it runs out? What if something happens? What if I have an emergency? Do I have enough saved in my bank account? We're constantly keeping an eye on the numbers in our account, watching the numbers rise and fall and wondering if we're safe. Or we can swing too far in the other direction and be completely careless about money. We're not watching our bank accounts at all. We have no idea where our money is going. We figure it'll sort itself out later. Another loan, more credit card debt, who cares? This is foolish, we're not stewarding our money. Money can also become a tool for power and manipulation. 
It's a way to get the things I want and to assert control over people. The more money I acquire, the more I feel in control of things and the more influence I have. When we have money, we get what we want because we have money. Some of us put our worth in our money and things. My name brand clothes are a status symbol, a way to boost my reputation. The kind of car sends a signal to people about what I want them to think about who I am. Maybe my pricey sunglasses or the shoes I own are trying to give me identity and value. And lastly, money and things become a source of escapism, running from the hurts and pains we have in life. Life is hard. I deserve to treat myself. We spend hours shopping, hiding from things that are difficult to deal with. We peruse Amazon or lose ourselves in the bargain aisle trying to soothe our aches. Jesus shows us a different way. For our greediness, he teaches us to hold things loosely and be generous. When we struggle with jealousy, he teaches us about gratitude, all the things we have to be grateful for. When we're fearful, he teaches us that God provides. When we worry about our, our, our possessions, he teaches us that God is the one who protects our things, and he teaches us to surrender. When we put our worth and value in our possessions, Jesus teaches us to, our, to root our identity in him as his beloved children. When we want to use money to exert our influence in hurtful ways, Jesus shows us that the servant is the greatest of all. When we are foolish with our money, he shows us the ways of wisdom. And when we run from pain into the pleasure of money, he points us to the God who is the God of all comfort. The ruts we get in with money are not the places we have to stay. The Spirit can help change our hearts toward money. But back to Advent Conspiracy. This week goes straight into the issue of consumerism with the theme Spend Less because this is the biggest money challenge we probably face at this time of year. Because no sooner are the pumpkins put away than the Christmas ads come up. And we get this like, tiny little breath at Thanksgiving, and then it's Black Friday and Cyber, money, Cyber Monday, and we're off to the races. Yeah. In 2018, holiday retail sales in the US passed $1 trillion. Ooh. The average household spent $1,536 on the Christmas holidays, with about $525 of that amount going towards presents. This is insane, and it's out of control, and I'm afraid that we followers of Jesus are just as caught up in it and just as complicit as everyone else. I think we're doing a really great job of lip service to the idea that Christmas is about Jesus. But it seems to me that our actions are betraying our beliefs. If we're out there filling up our credit cards and worrying about what we're going to get and frantically shopping, unless our hearts are into the, in the right place, we have bought into this hugely problematic system. So let me stop right here and clarify that I don't think that buying gifts is a bad thing. I don't think owning things or enjoying things or spending money is wrong. Gifts are fun, and that's part of the fun of Christmas. What I am saying is that maybe we've gone overboard. It's one thing to eat a bowl of ice cream, or maybe two. If you sit down and eat five pints of ice cream in a row, you have a problem. It's one thing to buy some gifts. It's another thing to jump into this frenzy of consumerism. We face a really big obstacle, though, because our culture is saturated in consumerism, and I don't think we realize how bad it is. Because we live in the thick of it, I don't think we know how far down the hole we've fallen. 
So when I was growing up as a missionary kid in Kenya, the local stores in my childhood were didn't have a lot in the way of stuff. So our Christmases were really simple. If you ask me what my favorite childhood Christmas gift was, it was this one year that my parents gave me and my two brothers, my two younger brothers, a ball of string, a pair of scissors, and a roll of masking tape. And I was like over the moon ecstatic because we always had these projects going on and I guess we were just like, we're going through the masking tape like nothing else. And I think my mom really got tired of us using your sewing scissors. Like these scissors, these shears are for fabric only and we're like taking them out and cutting up our pieces of cardboard. And that gave me hours and hours of fun. And I'm not, I'm not saying that flippantly or like, like I kid you not, I, I look back at that Christmas as like the wonder of them coming out and being like, here's your very own ball of string. Here's your very own pair of scissors. Here's your very own roll of masking tape. Win! Can't get better than this. But when I was in eighth grade, my family came back to the States for a one-year stay, and <clears throat> I left a world where we didn't have billboards or radio uh, jingles or flyers or TV ads or any of that stuff, and I came to a world that did have those things. And so I remember being in middle school, and I was kind of looking around at the kids who were in my classes because I was trying to figure out, how do I, how do I fit in in this world? And I started to learn this thing about, um, about clothing, that if your clothing came from certain stores or had certain symbols on it, like a swoosh, that was like the, the bee's knees, to sound like I'm from the 50s. Um, and one thing that really stood out to me was that kids were wearing these things called hoodies. And I just thought these were the coolest thing ever. And I really, 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 really wanted a hoodie. So, because I thought it would help my cool sense. I was really awkward and not cool. So Christmas came around and we were opening our presents and my parents handed me this present and I started to unwrap it. And I could see that it was fabric. I could see that there was a hood. And I pulled it out and it wasn't really a hoodie. It was, it was actually a lot like this. It was a plain blue zip-up jacket and it had a hood, but that's not a hoodie. A hoodie, like, pull over your head, and it's got that one pocket. It usually has, like, the name of a place or your school or, like, some funny saying. And this was just, like, a blue zip-up jacket, and I was so disappointed. Boy, had things changed for me, from being excited about masking tape to being so bummed about not getting a hoodie on Christmas. In Kenya, I didn't live a simple life, though, out of some great inner virtue. My family didn't avoid consumerism because we were striving to resist greed and jealousy in the ways of the world. There were two main reasons that we celebrated Christmas the way we did. One, we didn't really have a choice. So our immediate environment was, was not conducive to buying a bunch of things. Um, so of course I experienced greed and jealousy in my own way. These scissors are mine. But like buying a 10 cent candy bar for my siblings did not send me off into a, into a frenzy of shopping. The second reason though is that my parents weren't passive about it. They really wanted our celebrations to look the way they did because they wanted us to embrace simplicity for the joy of it. And they steered us into celebrating small things and enjoying one another. They also emphasized Christmas traditions of serving and giving to others through things like uh, we helped distribute food to widows during the Christmas season. We bought gifts for friends in need. We went to the hospital each year and caroled with the patients. Um, we made special meals every year for friends who couldn't afford big Christmas dinners. And we always hosted people who didn't have a place to go on Christmas. So between the lack of opportunity and the intentionality of my parents, I only thought about materialism a little bit. It was there, but it was pretty much asleep. 
when I got to the States and consumerism became a possibility, those dormant temptations woke up and I sank my teeth in. Thankfulness and gratitude and generosity kind of all went out the window and being thankful for my presence was so elementary school. Because our environment makes a really big difference. If you're in Minnesota in winter, you don't need to worry about mosquito bites and heat stroke. You do need to worry about blizzards and making sure you have a big enough stash of hot chocolate instant packets in your house. In the same way, our environment impacts our view of money. So we need to shake ourselves awake because here in St. Paul, we do have billboards and flyers and radio jingles and TV ads and mall Santas. In 2018, last year, retailers spent $3.7 billion on holiday advertising trying to get us to buy stuff. So that means if we want to push back against more, 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 we are going to be swimming upstream. And we have so much more than we realize. It, we, I, I was, as I was working on this, I just kept thinking, like, we are sick. Like, we are just sick with this disease of materialism, and we don't even realize how sick we are. For example, I was, I was in the middle of this sermon, typing this sermon, and I was feeling kind of stressed out that day, so in the middle of the, typing the sermon, I decided to take a break, and I was looking up something on the internet, and you know how the internet is, one thing led to another, led to another, and I realized, like, oh, there was that thing I wanted to buy. And so I found myself on Amazon, and I was like reading reviews and comparing shops, and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could get this secondhand on eBay. And then I was over on eBay, and I was like, oh, maybe I could get this custom made on Etsy. So I was on Etsy, and I'm like, in the middle of this, I was like, I am writing a sermon on spending less, and I just took a break to shop on Amazon. <laughs> like, what is going on? And who knows, I might buy this thing anyway, but... <laughs> But I want my heart to be in the right place. And shopping out of being stressed is not my heart in the right place. So how do we help reclaim our hearts this Advent season? I want to look at some words from the Apostle Paul that he gave to Timothy and then suggest three things we can do to realign our hearts. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, or it should be on the screen, you can follow along with me. This is 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Skip down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So the first thing I see in here that gets our hearts back into alignment is gratitude, or as Paul says, contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Content is just another word for satisfied. When we are content, we are satisfied with what we have. Paul reminds us that we came here with nothing, we will leave with nothing, so everything in between is a gift. 
If we have the basics we need, that is enough. I have food, that's a gift. I have clothing, that's a gift. I have a roof over my head, that's a gift. I have job and family and friends and health. All of those are gifts. And when I practice celebrating the things I do have, my heart finds peace and I think, I'm taken care of, I don't need anything. There's an interesting progression in verse uh, 17 because Paul says, point one, don't put your hope in wealth, it's uncertain. And we know that to be true. At any moment, we could lose everything we have. It's very, very shaky. Um, I lived through a period of very severe flooding in one of the towns I lived in. And I had a friend, her house, the flooding came up so fast, they didn't have time to leave, and they ended up needing to be evacuated by a boat. And, at, like, we were living, we weren't living, like, next, it was just, it was unbelievably fast. And the, the waters came in, and I was cleaning up houses afterwards, but the water was up over my head, the water marks on the walls. And just like that, you know, one day you have a dry house and everything's okay, and the next day your house has to be taken down because it's completely ruined. So Paul says, our, our riches are uncertain. You can't take hold of them. But the second thing Paul says is, that's not cause for concern because God richly provides for us. Our Father is taking care of us, so we don't need to worry if it's, if it's unsteady and unstable. And then Paul says something that might surprise us a little bit because he says, God richly provides us, and that sentence ends, with everything for our enjoyment. That's a little unexpected, right? Because God isn't like, here's some bread and water, be cheerful. He's a God of abundance and extravagance. Uh, One of my favorite ways to remember this is to look at flowers, because flowers don't really have a practical purpose. They're just beautiful, and we enjoy them. And they're kind of wasteful, right? They could be perceived as wasteful, kind of like pouring expensive perfume on someone's feet. But what a wonderful gift. So our contentment and our joy is both in our daily provision and in all the good that God pours into us. There was a period in my life when I was really suffering from severe anxiety and I was worried about whether there would be enough for me or not. I wasn't sure if I would have enough money or all the things that I needed. So one day I was actually, I was reading this passage and I had this realization that God giving us a multitude of things for our enjoyment is completely independent of money and possessions. And what I mean by that is I thought, what could I be thankful for that has nothing to do with money? So I sat down and I wrote out a list and I realized there's a lot of things we have, like stars and the spirit. We have songs and laughter. We have friends and beauty. We have rest. We have the stories that we tell. We have a world with color in it. We have our senses to enjoy things. And I found this so soothing because I knew that whatever happened to me material-wise, whatever happened with not having a job or having a job, there was an abundance of gifts that God was giving me that had nothing to do with my bank account. So practicing gratitude, it turns our heart back to God who is the source of all. Gratitude undercuts greed, it undercuts jealousy, it undercuts fear, it undercuts escapism. If we have nothing, we still have so much. Uh, Blogger Glennon Doyle, she has this hilarious post called Give Me Liberty or Give Me Debt, and it's about practicing gratitude. And she talks about going into her kitchen with what she calls her perspectacles and trying to look at everything with new eyes. And she says stuff like, I have a refrigerator. This thing magically makes cold food. I'm pretty sure in the olden days, Frontiers women had to drink warm Diet Coke. (laughs) 
This microwave is the magical is a magical box in which I put uncooked stuff in, push some buttons, and a minute later pull cooked stuff out. It's like the Jetsons up in here. I can't even talk about the coffee maker. It's like we need to take a moment of reverent silence because this machine is the reason all my people are still alive. It turns magical beans into life-saving nectar every morning on a timer. <laughs> you guys got to read this post. It's great. She goes through like every part of her kitchen and reflects on how amazing her world is. And think about that. If we shifted our focus to gratitude and we're amazed at the things we do have. So here's a few ideas to help us cultivate that. Keep a journal whose sole purpose is to write down the things that have blessed you during the day, things to be thankful for. And you won't always feel thankful when you're doing this, but guaranteed you will always be able to find something. Number two, voice those blessings out loud. Why do we only have one day where we go around the table and say what we're thankful for? What if we took a week, one meal a week, or tried practicing this for a month, where every day we sat down at a family meal and we took turns saying what we were thankful for that day. What if we tried that instead of waiting till next Thanksgiving? Or what if you took a tour of your house like Glennon did and talked out loud to each other about all the things you have that are blessings that you as a family can be grateful for? Number three, write some notes to people you are thankful for. Let them know how grateful you are. And when you're writing those notes, pray blessing over them. Number four, before you buy something, remember what you already have. You know, when you're a kid and you're out with your parents and they say that the infamous, we have food at home, what if on the top of your shopping list you wrote a note that said, we have good things at home? Just used it as a reminder. Be creative. The more ways we look to celebrate the ways that God provides and cares for us, the more natural it becomes for us to practice viewing the world this way. The second thing in this passage is generosity. Paul says, tell the rich to be rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. And he echoes Jesus in this, uh, because he says, in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Unlike earthly wealth, which is uncertain, Paul makes clear that treasure stored in heaven is a firm foundation. And Paul says that by doing this, we take hold of the life that is truly life. Because the abundant life that Jesus promises has nothing to do with possessions or money or wealth. Jesus himself didn't have a home. He was dependent on the provision of his father through the gifts of his disciples. Life that is truly life is being loved by God, loving God, and loving others. In addition to generosity being something that Paul calls us to to shape our hearts, it's also an obligation that we have. We are called to take care of the poor. And so if we're not doing that, we're not being obedient to the Father. Pause a second. Paul says, tell those who are rich in this present age to do, thing, to do these things. And I don't usually think of myself as rich, so does that mean that I'm off the hook? Far from it. Do this little experiment. I won't be offended if you do this right now. There's a website called globalrichlist.com. It has two questions on it. It asks for your net income and your location. And if you fill those in and hit the results, it shows you how many people in the world you are richer than. Um, I found that I am in the top 1.52% of the world by income. Yeah, I was amazed. It was like, you are richer than like 99 billion, 90, it was, it was ridiculous. I, was, I had to like get out 
how many commas, millions and billions were to figure out where I was. <clears throat> um, and I remember that I have a car and a laptop and I have money and I have, I have spending money that's just fun that doesn't go to anything necessary. So I had to do a little mental readjustment reading this passage and realize like, Paul's talking to me when he's saying, tell those who are rich in this present age, he's talking to me, Emily, and he's talking to most of us in this room. I do want to say that it might be true for me and most of us, but there are some of us who are in a position where we feel like we just don't have what we need and we're maybe squeaking by with our bills and trying to make ends meet. And that's a really tough spot to be in and I don't want to minimize that. But I would challenge you to go ahead and give anyway because it's a way of saying to God, I don't feel like I have anything to give, but I'm going to give as an act of trust and obedience. And I think you'll be surprised by how even when it feels like you have nothing to give, you give and you find yourself being the one who's blessed. If you can only give $10, give $10. Remember the widow who gave her last two coins in the temple and how Jesus said she had given more than all the others. So if generosity is an antidote to consumerism, here are some ideas for that. Number one, budget in monthly giving automatically. That way you have it built in your life as a pattern and a habit. If you decide to give to nonprofits or charities or ministries, monthly donations are really helpful, even if they're small, more so than one-time gifts, because a lot of um, nonprofits have to figure out their, their budgets. So they need to know like a steady money flow they can count on. So if you can set up regular giving, um, that's even more helpful. Create some fun giving. So you know how on our budgets we often have fun money for stuff that doesn't fit under bills or expenses, you know, I'm gonna go to a movie. So one great idea is to create in your giving some margin for just some fun giving. This leads you to be free to give to things as they come up. I talked to one couple that does this and this is how they explained it to me. They said, we split our giving between things that are predetermined monthly donations and contributions, but we also keep some for unknown giving opportunities, spontaneous giving, which is where the real fun and excitement comes in. Sometimes a family member needs some help or an unknown compelling cause comes up, and we have the flexibility to give the money. This is really exciting, and it becomes a, almost a fun game to hunt for cool opportunities to give. I know that sounds cheesy, but that's how it feels. Another couple I know sets aside what they call blessing money each month. And each month they just pick one person that they want to bless. They aren't public about this at all, and the only reason I know about this is because one month they chose to bless me. And it came at a time when I really needed it. I asked them why they've been doing this for years, because their job situations have sometimes changed. And they said, we didn't want to assume that we could be the kind of people who are generous with plenty, when we weren't being generous with our not so plenty. So they've made this a habit. And again, I think the amount that we're giving matters less than that we are giving. A third thing I would say is that besides giving money, another way to practice generosity is to give away things. I know someone, a family who had this practice, I can't remember wh exactly what day of the week it was, but it was something like Giveaway Wednesdays, where as a family, every Wednesday they would pick something to give away. And they did this, I'm not sure how long they did this, but it was a way to hold loosely to their things and not put a ton of energy into accumulating stuff and it was a way to bless others. And I'm not talking about just like giving away things that are ratty and falling apart. <laughs> you know, like little kids will sometimes give you a gift and be like, I didn't want this so you can have it. It's like, oh wow, I feel really touched. Um, it was like nice things, like what are some nice things that we like? Um, 
I heard about this missionary who did something like this. He had met a pastor, and every Christmas, this pastor and his family would give away their family's favorite thing. That was a Christmas tradition they had. So this missionary was like, huh, I think I'll give this a try. So when Christmas came around, the first year he gave away his favorite shirt to a friend. Then the next year he gave away his favorite tie. And then the next Christmas he gave away his favorite shoes. And he says this, by, by year three or four, I found out my stuff didn't have a pull on me at all. Like I wasn't even sure what to give away anymore. Rich Mullins has a song that says, The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. And I found that by giving away my favorite thing, the stuff of earth wasn't competing anymore with my allegiance to the giver of those things. So gratitude, generosity, ways to resist. I want to do this in threes and give you one more word. This doesn't really fit into Paul's passage, but it's unique to us. Um, And that G is actually a phrase, and it's gaming the system, which I bet you did not see coming. We move through a world where as many as 5,000 ads are being shot at each of us a day, and people are spending their lives trying to get us to buy things. That's the system that we live in. And then there's this other devious part of it. Not only are they trying to get us to buy things, they're trying to get us to buy things over and over again. We've heard that saying, they just don't make it like they used to. And that's actually true. Because there's this thing in retail called planned obsolescence. And what that means is that today manufacturers are intentionally making things to be used as for as short a period of time as they possibly can so that we have to go out and buy them again. So back in ye olden days, things were made sturdy and made to last, and now things aren't. The quality isn't as good on purpose, which means that things break down much sooner and we have to replace them. Or things are constantly being upgraded. I'm looking at you, Apple. So we have to keep buying the new version, especially if they do things like change the chargers. Like we're forced to get something new because this charger doesn't work anymore. And then there's uh, fast fashion, which the hat tip to the Moors, they sent me this really cool YouTube video about fast, fa- fast fashion, fast fashion. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Clothing retailers are buying really cheap material and changing styles so fast that we have to get, that we have to keep up with them. And we're buying way more clothing. And what's happening to all the clothing that we buy and get rid of the next month and buy and get rid of the next month is that it's going into landfills. And our world is just getting cluttered with all this, this clothing. This is part of the system, not just buy stuff, but buy it again and again and again. Um, when I was in second grade, I remember my music teacher giving a really stern talk to our class at the beginning of the year. And she said, kids, these textbooks they gave us have really thin pages. And do you want to know why they have really thin pages? That's because the people who make these textbooks think that you're little kids and you're going to tear the pages and we're going to have to buy new ones. But are we going to do that? We're all like, no, we're not going to do that. We'll show them. And this like little second grader in me was like, yeah, I'm not going to rip these pages. And I didn't, and it felt great. And I think that there's this like little second grader in me sometimes still uh, that like wants to do that. And I think we can do that as a whole. It's like, they want us to do this thing? Well, we're going to show them. We're going to game the system. I broke some sunglasses recently, and I was going to throw them in the trash, and then I heard that second grader in my head, and I pulled them out, and I taped them together, and I used them as my car sunglasses, and it's really good, because every time I put them on, and I'm driving by a store, and I'm going to go in, it's like I have this 
physical reminder of taking off my sunglasses and I look at that piece of tape and I'm like, okay, when I go in, like, what am I gonna buy? Do I need this? And it really helps me because I want stuff, y'all. I want stuff. And I need that to be like in my, literally in my face. You don't need these things. So how are some ways we can game the system? Advent Conspiracy challenges us this month to buy one less present. That's all. Just one less present. That's already going against the system. But why stop there, guys? Like, let's buy two less presents or three less presents, something like that. Tally off every day on your calendar that you don't buy a present. When you do buy stuff, buy secondhand. It stops feeding the system of new, new, new. Um, supply chains are really complicated and tricky, but part of the reason that we can get cheap stuff is because it's built on the backs of cheap labor. So try and buy ethically. There are websites and resources out there that can help you make better decisions. If you can, buy things that are longer lasting. One really helpful resource I found is a website called buymeonce.com. Um, and their whole mission is to resist planned obsolescence. They say on their website, our goal is to force a change in throwaway culture. So if you're interested in looking at more high quality stuff um, that will last long, buymeonce.com is a great um, resource. And then lastly, there's a saying our country used to push when we were going through the Great Depression and World War II. And I think it would be wise for us to listen to again. And it goes, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. What if we shifted into that mentality? Use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without. So that was a lot of stuff I just threw at you, but I hope it's kind of exciting too, because guess what? We don't have to fall into the consumerism quicksand. Jesus has a new way, a freeing way, a simple way, an adventurous way. We don't have to be under this burden of shopping and spending. So this season, you know what? We are not going to buy into the world's message that more is better. We are not going to buy into the idea that presents make us happy or keep us safe or make people love us or fill the holes in our hearts. Instead, we are going to claim hold of the life that is truly life. We're going to game the system. We are going to be generous. We are going to practice gratitude. And in doing that, we are going to reclaim a part of what makes Christmas meaningful in the first place. And that meaning is a generous God who loved us so much that he sent his only son as a gift so that we would know exactly how much he loved us.